everybody. Welcome to Crystal Collin Friends. Very excited about the gentleman who will be joining us today for our interview, Ken Klippenstein, phenomenal reporter for The Intercept, um, really goes deep on a lot of national security stories, on a lot of sort of corporate power and abuse stories. Talking to rank-and-file workers, rank-and-file folks working at these agencies and digging up the things that, frankly, oftentimes the mainstream media has no interest in it. Yeah. Uh, unrelated, but do you think people confuse, like, do you say, they say Ken Klippenstein to him sometimes? Or is it always Steen? Do you get the sense that there's a little bit of confusion on that front? I feel like there always is. Yeah. I'm even questioning myself right now. Right. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it's Klippenstein. Okay. We could just call him... I just say it with, I just, when I, I'm not sure about a name, my go-to move is just to say it with a lot of confidence and Because mm, then what happens is even <laughs> if you're wrong, people are like, oh, she's, she's obviously right obviously about that. She's obviously got that yeah. down. Yeah. yeah. No, it'll be good. Ken uh, Ken does a great job over at The Intercept. He and, also uh, has an amazing Twitter feed. He does. He does. Hilarious. Hilarious. Um, yeah, if you go through the list of the stories he's covered, it's it's banger after banger. So Indeed. definitely looking forward to it. But before we get into that, mm-hmm. um, this clip was very, very interesting to me because it made me think. And I like stuff that I don't necessarily agree with, but it makes me think. That's yeah. like my, that's the stuff that I'm always searching out. I don't need you anybody do to- gravitate towards that. Yeah, I don't want anybody to, you know, confirm my priors. I know what they are and I know what I think and I can give you a thousand different arguments for the things I think. Tell me, disagree with me, but in a way that's really thoughtful. And I'm like, ooh, this is interesting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of what happens here with John Stewart. I don't know if I fully disagree. It's like half agree, half disagree. But anyway, we'll get into all that. John Stewart uh, was at the New Yorker Festival, and he was asked an interesting question on cancel culture. And here's his response. A lot of voices now, John, are are like Bill Maher, for example, when it comes to the culture wars. He's, he expresses his frustration over and over again. I can't say this. We're limited in saying that. We have to wear a gag and th- this kind of expression. Comedians are talking all the time about, well, I I, I feel I can't do this. I can't say that. No. How do you come down on this? All the people who talk about cancel culture, here's here's a nice absurdity. Okay. People that talk about cancel culture never seem to shut the fuck up about it. Like, there's more speech now than ever before. It's not you can't say. It's that when you say it, look – the internet has democratized criticism. What do we do for a living? We talk shit. We criticize. We postulate. We opine. We make jokes. And now other people are having their say. And that's not cancel culture. That's relentlessness. We live in relentless culture. And the system of the internet and all those other things are incentivized to find the pressure points of that and exacerbate it. So before I give my thoughts on it, I want to get your initial thoughts on that. Okay, so um, sometimes when we talk about cancel culture, which, by the way, is just a phrase that I absolutely hate. Part of why I hate it is because I think people talk about different things. There is a lot of whining from people with gigantic platforms, people like Bill Maher, um, about criticism that they receive. And 
the attendant cancel culture. Oftentimes, these are people who have platforms that are more or less protected or they're wealthy individuals. They're going to be fine even if they weather a little bit of controversy, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think as what Stewart is saying is applied to that class of people, I think he's, you know, I think he's definitely got a point there. There is a lot of like just whining about people being mean to me on Twitter and I should be able to have my view, whether it's good, bad or indifferent, without facing any sort of pushback. And that, you know, that I think is sort of silly. The part that he misses and doesn't talk about is oftentimes people who are more are, you know, don't have gigantic social media followings or gigantic media platforms, don't have tons of money. The consequences for them of having a view, you know, attacked or their comments attacked or whatever it is, being deplatformed, being fired, et cetera, are far more grave. Um, and so I think that's the part of this that there's there's zero nuance in this debate. There are a lot of effectively bad actors who just like to whine about this because they don't want to receive any criticism and they sort of want that to be a bulwark to protect the status quo. But there's also a legitimate problem with uh, an instinct that has taken hold rather than organize and have solidarity and build a political movement and have real power. I'm just going to call out this person or call out that person to signal my own moral purity. Yeah. So um, I thought his comments were interesting because I'm not sure anybody has made uh, a better defense of quote unquote cancel culture. But like you, I share the criticism that I'm, I, I, it's so annoying to hear that now because to uh, John Stewart's point, I think the truest thing he said there is that um, people who talk about cancel culture can't seem to shut the fuck up about cancel culture. That is so true. There are some people who are, it's just total one trick pony. That's all they got. That's all they go back to. And they'll almost make a point of not talking about any economic issues, right. any foreign policy issues, anything that's real substantive and material and impacts people every single day, way more than cancel culture stuff. Right. They they'll, won't talk about that and they'll only talk about the cancel they'll culture. They'll talk stuff. about cancel culture and it's it's twin wokeness, right? Well, Everything. Right. Well, I'm putting all yeah. into one, mm -hmm. all into one here. Cancel culture, wokeness, political correctness slash political incorrectness. I just saw Larry all... Summers say that the Fed, the woke Fed, is why we have inflation, for example. Right. Like, this this is... just gets used in every way. They were saying, you know, they were blaming wokeness. They were saying it was the reconciliation bill is woke. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? It has uh, universal pre-K. Community it college. It has co community college. It has paid uh, family leave. It has paid, there were two different kinds of paid leave in there. I forget the two different kinds of paid leave, but you get the point. It's got child tax credit in there. It's got expanded Medicare in there. It's got higher tax on there. That's just good policy. And you can't just throw this wet blanket over it. Wokeness. And he's people going, oh, uh, fucking woke again. That. The fucking woke mob is coming for me to give me good things. <laughs> so I just, so yes, it, it is, it's a tired conversation. It's a stale conversation. That's an interesting perspective I've never heard. Um, so yes, on the one hand, there's, there's two parts to this. On the one hand, it is true. And Bill Maher's a great example of this. Cancel culture, talking about cancel culture, they use it to bitch about anything and everything, about any criticism that comes their way, even if that criticism is legitimate. And right-wingers use it in an even more nefarious way sometimes, where they'll claim you're canceling them simply when you point out like a factual inaccuracy that they make. Like, I remember Ann Coulter was blaming can cancel culture because she gave some shitty anecdote about an immigrant committing crime, and then somebody pointed out to her, actually, if you look at the data and the statistics, um, 
both undocumented immigrants and documented immigrants both commit crime, respectively, at a lower rate than the domestic American citizens population. who were born here. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so you point that out. Oh, but the cancel culture is coming for me. No, we are correcting you. You're not we're, you're not being politically incorrect. You're just being incorrect. And so now we're correcting you. So that's that's one part of the conversation. Yes. Um, but I do think uh, he misses one important point, which is embedded in his commentary, implied in his commentary, is this idea that, well, now that we've democratized criticism, which I agree is a good thing. It's good that we democratize criticism. Mm -hmm. I want more people to have a voice. Of course, I'm a believer in democracy. Yeah. Um, But he does seem to imply that, like, all criticism is almost inherently reasonable. Mm. You know what I mean? That, like, well, you're getting all these voices, and therefore it's like the best voices are going to rise to the top, and so the criticisms are going to be reasonable, so sort of suck it up and deal with it and don't complain about it ever. And it's like, oftentimes, um, the criticism is fucking stupid, too. And you'll get people wanting to, and this is the other part he misses, that it's only really cancel culture, cancel culture to me, and it's only really a problem to me when it becomes authoritarian, which is, I want you fired, so I'm going to try to make you lose your job. You know, or I want you deplatformed, or I want you censored, or I want to make sure, you know, you don't get a speech at whatever place, whatever mm-hmm. college campus you were going to give a speech. Right. That's when I draw a line and I go, no, 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 no. Because even if everything you're saying is true, even if the person is racist, bigoted, and all these terrible things, you still shouldn't say, we're going to not allow you to speak at all. I would love to get his thoughts on um, Abby Martin, who won a court case against uh, a anti-BDS law in Georgia where effectively she was um, she was supposed to give a speech at a public institution there. And as a condition of doing so, she was going to have to sign some freaking like loyalty pledge to Israel. That I would never boycott Israel. Effectively. Right. And so she was like, yeah, she was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take you to court and I'm going to win. And this this case points out the hypocrisy of a lot on the right when it comes to cancel culture, because. Probably the most um, widespread version of actual cancel culture has to do with standing up for the rights of human rights of Palestinians. Right, I mean, like the law. They will come after you with the law with the is law. the point. Look at Ben and Jerry's. Or all of these, I mean, how much, it's like 36 states or something that have passed these anti-BDS laws, which are completely insane and in every instance have been found to be unconstitutional where they've been challenged. Or you have these laws that are effectively trying to criminalize protests. Anti-protest laws right. in over 20 states, correct. So yeah. talk to me about that cancel culture. So he has a point there with regards to how disingenuous a lot of the conversation is and how hypocritical a lot of the conversation is here. But he assumes that the only cancel culture is basically people who are sort of more working class or everyday citizens punching up versus oftentimes some of the cancel culture that you see where there are the kind of ramifications you're talking about are people who are like elite media or other positions of power punching down and causing issues for, you know, people who have less power than them. And um, that dynamic is important. And it's it's not just important. You know, you see the way social media companies are increasingly censoring because this there, right. there's mm-hmm. this demand from journalists and from politicians that they censor more and they, you know, only push people to CNN and New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. So it matters in terms of law. It matters in terms of individual consequences for their lives. But it also matters in terms of just, um, you know, there are a lot of people who will just keep their mouth shut about something because they're, they're afraid, afraid of, consequences, of those right. consequences. And that sort of curtailing and limiting 
of the um, ability of that like preemptive limiting of free speech, I think, is also a major problem. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the reason why he has the perspective he has is because he's a comedian and he's in comedian circles and in comedian circles. This is sort of like the go to thing when for whatever reason you're not getting the reaction that you want to get. And sometimes mm. it is because there's oversensitive college kids who genuinely have sticks up their asses and are like, I don't find anything funny that's funny. Sometimes it's like that. But then other times you're just not fucking funny. Right. Like to Bill Maher, like you stopped being funny like seven years ago, dog. So like you can't just be ah, the wokeness, the cancel culture. No, it's that you sort of and this is Stewart's point. Again, something embedded in his argument here is like update your shit. Like right. actually make people laugh, take it as a challenge to, okay, I got to navigate the new waters. So, and so I think if I was in his shoes, I'd probably have a similar position to the one he has, but I think that's that an interesting point since I'm in, well, because again, in the comedian circles, it's 24 seven, everybody bitching well, about cancel culture. And eventually I'd be like, shut the fuck up about cancel culture. But listen, being in my shoes, the reason why I think I see a little more nuance in this. And I, you know, I think that it is more of an issue than he certainly thinks it is, is because, again, I, I also feel the ramifications of it, in a sense, to a small degree, which is, you know, the moral panic around YouTube and when there was adpocalypse and, oh, my God, a Nestle ad ran on a white nationalist channel, therefore defund all of news and politics. And, right. oh, my God, we don't know what this crazy guy Kyle is saying. Nobody controls him. He doesn't work for any or official organization. So why don't we derank him in the algorithm, make it so that he can't reach as many mm -hmm. new people in the audience. And so that also is cancel culture in a sense. Let's prioritize and have a hierarchy of what's acceptable and not acceptable in terms of news and politics. And it's like, once you open that door and start going down that path, there's no closing it. And eventually you have a fucking ministry of truth that tells everybody what they can and can't say. The sad thing is with YouTube, and I think, you you know, like you are and I am on kind of like the front lines of you see the way that this trickles down through the culture and the kind of widespread effects it has outside of the personal consequences for one particular individual. But I mean, rising kind of snuck in on YouTube because we were under the corporate um the hill, umbrella right. of the hill. And so we were able to kind of like, you know, make it through that and build an audience that we've been now able to take independent. But, you know, for a new creator in news and politics on YouTube to really get traction and get going, like, it would be almost impossible That's now. right. Yeah. Because they've so slanted everything towards New York CNN, Times, the MSNBC. CNN, MSNBC, um, who, by the way, purvey their own misinformation. Oh, for sure. Plenty of times, um, but they don't get any penalty for it. But they just have decided that's safer. So, um, you know, that I consider that to be a tremendous loss, that there are all kinds of brilliant people out there who may have had a path previously to be able to get their views and their analysis and their reporting heard. And that path is effectively closed off now. Right. Uh, agreed. And so I, uh, I agree with him that democratizing every, voices has been good. Democratizing criticism has been good. I think the only part he really misses is that not all criticisms are inherently reasonable and cancel culture really becomes a problem when it is authoritarian and when you start censoring, deplatforming, firing people and having real world consequences for things that, you know, might be wrong to say or even right to say, but are just controversial. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's, a, it's a fascinating comment from Jon Stewart. Uh, I see a little bit more nuance in it than yeah. he does. Yeah. The, the last thing that I'll say um, on this is I think there's an assumption from him and a lot of other people that um, the people who whine about cancel culture, like 
they are sort of an elite group. And so they're pushing back against any sort of change. But what we've seen and what we've experienced is that actually the reality of cancel culture has made it much harder for the little guy and girl to come up independently, to have their views and voices heard. So it is an anti-democratizing force, all of this censorship and rigging of the algorithm and deplatforming and all of that is is anti-democratic, whereas he thinks that it's actually pro-democratic. That's a great point. And I'll also add to that. It also kind of sucks all the air out of the room and wastes a lot of energy that could be guided into a constructive way to address the issues that mm-hmm. these people claim to care about. Agreed. You know what I mean? Especially so, on the left. Like, it's the anti, it's anti-solidarity, basically. Right, exactly. And so just to give one example, you know, the uproar over Dave Chappelle with his special and, uh, you know, the transgender community being angry or some in the transgender community being angry over it and some wanting to get the special pulled. What if all that energy, instead of going towards nobody should be allowed to watch this special, what if all that energy went towards a direct effort to get anti-discrimination protections on the book for transgender people in all 50 states? So what if all that energy was directed at the Biden administration to say, Right now, trans people are not a protected class. They're not. You know, uh, I think gay people are. Different races are. With gender, it is. But trans people specifically, there's in over 20 states, there's no protections whatsoever. So in other words, it is theoretically legal for a business owner to say... Directly discriminate. I don't want to hire you because you're trans, and I think that's weird, and I'm not comfortable with it, so I'm not going to hire you because you're trans. In theory, they could say that. Perfectly legal. That's the problem. That's the problem. The problem is, yeah, you know, trans people have a rough go of it. Society has not fully accepted trans people yet by any stretch of the imagination. They get questioned more than anybody else. I think generally homosexuality has been a lot more accepted at this point. Trans people, that's not the case. And you might suffer with job prospects as a result of it. If people just think it's weird, if people don't understand it fully. And so getting anti-discrimination protections on the books is super important. And I don't see now I, I, I don't. I'm not as familiar with the issue as many others are, so I don't want to speak too broadly here, but all I'll say is certainly the thing the media is focusing on is trans activism insofar as it wants to pull down a comedy special and not trans activism insofar as it wants to really change the structure of society to get better laws on the books. Yeah, well, and I suspect that is partly a media problem as well. But to John Stewart's point, um, I shared with you a post that I thought was really instructive that was like, listen, and it was written by a trans person. It was like, listen... I'm not mad at you and trying to get you canceled for telling trans jokes. I'm mad and annoyed that you keep telling the same trans joke that's not funny anymore or creative anymore over and over and over again and went through like all of them and how repetitive Mm -hmm. they are and like how in every special is the same joke. That kind of goes to Jon Stewart's point of like update your stuff. Yeah. Doesn't mean you're like Dave Chappelle's fine. He's rich. His thing. They're standing by him too, by the way. His thing is not getting pulled. mm -hmm, Which is good. But like, you know, at least be funny. Yeah, listen, it was in my very opinion, preachy, his well, that's what I was going to say is that Dave Chappelle funny. really, I mean, I love Chappelle's show. I'm a huge fan of his stand up. I do think he's arguably the goat when it comes to comedy. But okay. yeah, I watched the most recent special and it was a little too preachy. Like it leaned more on the preachiness than usually the rule for comedians is be funny first and then whatever else follows, follows. He seemed to put the preachiness first. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of like. Eh, it you're sort watching of it. felt like the criticism got in his head. Right. And that that would be my advice to Dave Chappelle, too. Is stop reading the criticism, man. Yeah. How, how long have you been doing this? You don't know that by now? To stop, I stopped reading the criticism a long time ago. And I'm, pff, shit, my blood pressure probably went down. I feel a hell of a lot better. Like, you know, there's only so much a human being can take in terms of criticism where people are telling you stuff about you that you know isn't true. You're going to start to lose your mind. So anyway, that's what I would say to him. And that's a problem for comedians more generally, too, is that I think that's 
a lot of them might lose their step when they become more preachy than they are, mm. you know, funny. I think there are some exceptions to that rule, like uh, maybe George Carlin and maybe um, Bill Hicks were examples of like they were they're like. 40% political commentator, 60% comedian. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And they're in a unique space. Yeah. But um, yeah, most comedians who are pure comedians, if they get too preachy, it's just... It... Yeah. I mean, Stuart in The Daily Show walked that line but very, he, very think, well. But... I think he clearly put comedy first, though. I don't think he was nearly as preachy as even Carlin or Hicks. Yeah, I think he very clear Because, you know, ideologically, sometimes he'd hit you out of left field with something that you didn't think would be in his his wheelhouse because again i think he prioritized the funny over the yeah you know by the way guys if you want to see john stewart doing some great work um he tears apart dennis mcdonough the current secretary of the va in his new show the problem with john stewart in a way that you don't see a single journalist in this town hold people in, in power to actual account which is so and this sad. was over um compensation for people who have suffered horrific um, injuries and health issues because of tox exposure to toxic burn pits. So definitely check that out. Yeah. Years later, we're still relying on Jon Stewart to be like one of the best <laughs> hey. journalists in the country, even though he's not a journalist. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. It is. It truly is. All right. This story, I'm kind of getting your reaction to in, in real time. Okay. Because uh, I think you haven't heard the exact comments. So Katie Couric um, is out with this new memoir. Hasn't actually published yet, but now things are starting to leak out about what's in it. And most of it is like trashing her colleagues and talking about her ex-boyfriends. And she even talks shit about like her nanny. I don't know why you would do that. That's like that's just wrong. Yeah, that's fucked up. Um, but she admits to in a 2016 interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she admits that she edited out negative comments about Colin Kaepernick and kneeling during the national anthem because she was worried about it reflecting poorly on RBG. So you weren't doing an interview. You were doing a puff piece. You were doing some propaganda for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thank you. So let me read you. Uh, the Daily Mail broke this story. So they say the published story, which Couric wrote for Yahoo News in 2016, did include quotes from Ginsburg uh, saying that refusing to stand for the anthem was dumb and disrespectful. But... She omitted more problematic remarks. Kirk said she faced a conundrum when Ginsburg made comments about Kaepernick, the former NFL player. She felt that when Ginsburg said that people like Kaepernick were dumb and disrespectful, that the comments were unworthy of a crusader for equality, like the liberal Supreme Court justice. The day after the sit-down, uh, the head of public affairs for, for the Supreme Court emailed Couric to say the late justice had misspoken and asked that that portion be removed from the story. Couric writes that she was conflicted because she was a, quote, big RBG fan. She then called a friend. You, any guess on who the friend is? You're going to love this. David Brooks of the oh. New York Times, <laughs> who oh. advised her that Ginsburg probably, on, probably didn't understand the question. Sitting Supreme Court justice ruling on some of the most important issues of the land. She probably didn't understand the question. Um, and Ginsburg went on to say, so in addition to the dumb and disrespectful quote, which was included in the piece, she went on to say that such protests show a, quote, contempt for a government that has made it possible for their parents and grandparents to live a decent life. Oh, Jesus Quote, Christ. which they probably could not have lived in the places they came from. As they became older, they realized that this was youthful folly. And that's why education is important. Your thoughts. 
Damn, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had the exact sort of like 95-year-old woman thoughts that I would have thought a 95-year-old woman yeah, would have had. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like what she said it was dumb and disrespectful what he was doing. Dumb and disrespectful and they um the government this government gave them a decent life which they probably could not have lived. Be thankful. In the places they came from. Be thankful for everything that's been given to you, like the war on drugs, which disproportionately jails black and brown people. And, uh, you know, he was protesting specifically for because all the police shootings. Racial justice. Right. Um, Any commentary from a Supreme Court justice other than the obvious on this, I'm not interested in. So in other words, what she should have said is in this country, we have a First Amendment, which protects free speech rights, free expression, freedom to protest. Now, technically, that's about the government can't jail you for your speech. But you know what? I believe in the spirit of the First Amendment as well, not just the legal, the legality of the First Amendment. So in other words, yeah, I don't think he should lose a job because he decided to speak his mind and speak his conscience and try to do a peaceful form of protest. Because that's the other hypocrisy that drives me crazy, particularly from the right, where, you know, they act like, oh, if you just protested peacefully. Why are you guys riding? Why are you burning stuff down? If you just protest peacefully, we'd agree with you. Yeah. And, and then Kaepernick like, protests peacefully and they're that. like, oh my God, this you disrespectful, can't do this. disgusting. You can't do that. So in other words, just be honest. You want them to sit down, shut up and take it. That's and pretty much what she's saying. There. That's what RBG saying there. It makes it particularly egregious because again, if you're on the Supreme Court, even Justice Scalia, who's the furthest right wing judge when he was alive, he very famously in a case on flag burning, what did he say? He's like, look, man, I might not like it personally, but that doesn't really matter because in this country we have free speech and we have free expression and this counts as free expression. This is an expression of discontent with the government. So it doesn't matter who likes it or doesn't like it. It is allowed to happen. If you're not saying that about Kaepernick. So she did make some comments to that regard of like, listen, it's protected. It's not illegal. Um, But as you're pointing out, we did not need that additional uh, commentary on top of it. And then there's the piece of Katie Kirk, though. Like, editing those comments out... You're a propagandist. Because you're an RBG fan. You're a propagandist. That's what you are. And and David Brooks tells you this is the right thing to do. And apparently there was a big internal conflict about how to handle this and whatever, whatever. Like, that's just blatantly wrong. It's just, like, wildly unethical. There's no conflict. There's the thing that's correct to do journalistically and ethically and morally, and then there's being a fucking coward and a propagandist, and you picked the coward and propagandist route. Congratulations. Nobody should ever take you seriously on anything ever again. And, you know, um, there's there's real-world impacts to these decisions as well. I mean, RBG was turned into this, like, liberal hero totally unimpeachable character and she the has, notorious rbg yeah and she's she's a human being she's she's been on the wrong side of a number of decisions especially earlier on she's with a centrist judge to labor rights and um remember when there was a conversation about like maybe she should retire so that we can make sure we get a, a democrat who can pick the next supreme court justice oh you can't say any of this you can't That's push her sexist. out et cetera, et cetera. Mm. so allowing people with tremendous power, mm-hmm. unelected, tremendous power to maintain their hero status, there are real costs and consequences to that. I'm just shocked that she actually admitted it. 
I'm stunned that she actually put that in this book. I mean, it will help sell more books, I guess. Well, but she, to admit something like that, where it's just a complete breach of any sort of journalistic ethics, that's is pretty stunning. That's what drives me crazy is that they seem totally oblivious to the gravity of their actions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they just seem, it's to, it's nothing to them. It's like, you know, just another day. It's the same thing as getting a cup of coffee in the morning. This idea that you could just cover up what a Supreme Court justice says because you like that Supreme Court justice and you know the response to it is going to be negative. It's going to be like, so like Let me protect them. And look, Do you can you can put in there that, you know, they asked, they said she misspoke after the fact, but you don't, you don't pull it from the piece. But look, this is also, I mean, this speaks to why people don't trust media, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and I'm not saying, because a lot of hacks make this point to try to then divert people to say the alternative media sources, like One American News are better. No, they're fucking horrendous. And I just covered a story where one of them was calling for executing political opponents on that network. So I'm not making that point. They're horrendous. But this is why people don't trust the liberal elite network. Yeah. No, if this was Scalia who said this, oh, they'd run it. No problem. That's right. All day long. Yeah. All and so, long. and then you can't blame them. That's the thing. You can't blame people for saying, well, why would I you. listen to you? I, I don't trust you. Why would I trust you? And then you had Brian Stelter given that smug, arrogant rant the other day about how yeah. there are reporters and there are repeaters and we're the reporters oh, over here. It's like, no, you guys. Let's, are, let's ask him about. Uh, sanctimonious, self-aggrandizing pricks. Let's talk right, to, yeah, let's exactly. talk to you about Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo. I didn't Cuomo. bring that up in my commentary. I brought up like a thousand things CNN oh, got well, wrong, I mean, but I forgot the Cuomo one. Yeah, there's. It was almost too obvious. There's too many. You know what I mean? There's too many to count. But I mean, Stelter went on, uh, was it with Colbert, one of the late night shows and was actively like running interference right, for yeah. CNN Even on that Colbert, line. who's the biggest ally to those people in the world, was like, really? Yeah. Yeah, that, it, that says something. It does All say right. something. Anyway, so let's Speaking go ahead. good journalism, we have a great, great journalist coming up, Ken Klippenstein. Um, he's currently investigative reporter for The Intercept, doing great work there. He's previously at The Nation. Before that, he was at TYT. And um, as I said before, his beat, his focus is national security state. He has phenomenal sources at all of these agencies, um, is always uncovering stories that no one else is even paying attention to, let alone, you know, finding news to report on. He also has a focus on corporate abuses of power. So with no further ado, here is Ken Klippenstein. Ken Klippenstein, welcome. Great to have you. Good to be with you, Darius. What do you think of our magnificent studio here? Fancy. <laughs> um, you actually have a big scoop out this morning that I wanted to start with. You have an email that you got your hands on that Verizon sent to their employees trying to convince them that they need to fight against any sort of corporate tax hikes. Um, just break down the story for us and how'd you get your hands on this thing? Yeah, so actually a couple of different Verizon employees contacted me saying, we're getting these really weird messages from management signed by the executive vice president, I think it was the CFO as well, um, instructing them to contact their representatives and to tell them, no, we don't want this corporate tax increase embodied in the uh, uh, Build Back Better legislation that the Biden administration, you know, the vast majority of Democrats are pushing. And, you know, it's not just significant as a you know, corporate tax increase on this enormously profitable company, but as a way to finance the stuff, the popular stuff that they, they have in their legislation. Right. And so um, people were upset about that. I started looking through the um, email that they were sending. It's basically a form message to send to their congressperson. And um, what's interesting is how misleading the uh, message is that they're sending to these rank and file workers. This isn't to management. This is to you know Everybody. basically everyone in the company. Except 
have a except lot. Except union members, I'm told. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Which is very I was interesting. Gonna say they have a lot. They're of... educated enough to be like, "Fuck off!" Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the stuff is like the worst kind of you know turning point USA talking points. It's like we want to remain competitive. It's not that we want to you know keep our profits. It's that we want to remain competitive in the global marketplace. We have this just stifling corporate tax rate here in the U.S., which is. It is high, but that's not the rate they actually that's not pay. The effective they rate, pay correct. far less than that. Let me just interject for one second, just so everybody knows. There's the nominal rate and there's the effective rate. The nominal rate is what it is on paper, and yes, it's true that on paper we have one of the higher ones in the world. But the effective rate, which what is what's actually, actually paid pay. after all the loopholes and deductions and nonsense, and your army of attorneys gets at it, then all of a sudden it goes all the way down. We have one of the lowest in the developed world. So there's that. Anyways, I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah. So as I was researching this piece, you know, corporations in general pay far less, but Verizon is one of the lowest uh, for really? a number of years they were paying a negative tax rate, mm. meaning the U.S. government was giving them money uh. because they were so good at using these tax loopholes and stashing money, wow. money overseas, you know, large sums of money overseas where it isn't taxed. I mean, looking at this message too, not just is it all the, you know, most tried and true conservative talking points that you could possibly imagine. Presented as fact. It's all. There's also an implicit threat in here. They say... Recent studies have identified that as much as 70 to 85% of the corporate tax is borne by wage earners. So they're effectively threatening the workers like, oh, if our taxes go up, we're not going to pay more. You are going to be the ones that pay the price here, which is really something. And these are the companies that, you know, are the quickest to raise the red flag if a, if someone mentions a union on, on work hours saying, no, 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 we don't want to be biased like that. We can't let these things, that we you know, we just got to focus on work. And it's like, well, you're doing what you claim that you don't want the unions to do, which is indoctrinating workers. And so I looked at that figure. I was thinking, oh, it must be some American Enterprise Institute kind of study. I couldn't find any evidence for it uh, besides, but get this, Treasury Secretary under Trump, Mnuchin used uh, very similar figures in an interview with um, Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. Wallace actually pushed back to his credit and said, your own Treasury Department says that's not true, uh, and cited a study that his own Treasury Department said that that's not the case, that the vast majority of um, uh, people affected by this are actually the shareholders of the companies, not the people that work in them by is, these corporate taxes. Is this legal? <laughs> I mean, I talked to some um, union folks and they said that unfortunately, it's sort of like the Wild West because uh, business has so much power over and, and labor has so little power. Um, it, it's sort of shocking how much they're able to do they and can get just away with. Directly political propaganda right. yeah. to their workforce with implied threats. It's incredible. You mentioned there that the corporate tax rate was one of the ways that the reconciliation bill would be paid for, and that's true. And you reminded me of the line from Mansion and Cinema, where they say, listen, the only way we're voting for this thing is if it's deficit neutral. Everything has to be paid for. To which the response from progressives and even Pelosi and Biden was, okay, fine, it'll be paid for. Here's how we're going to pay for it. Raise taxes on the wealthy, raise taxes on corporations, so on and so forth. And then they go, no, not like that. So pay for it, but don't pay for it like this, which means what? How else would you pay for it? You either have to cut other programs in the government or you have to raise taxes on working class people. So they never really connect those dots fully. Um, so I was doing some phenomenal research uh, before you came in here reading your Wikipedia page. And <laughs> <laughs> Anything you want to dispute there, by the way. <laughs> and I learned that uh, you are exactly one day younger than me. That's right. And, oh, yeah. wow. And the same initials, Kyle Klinsky, Ken Klippenstein. That's right. We're not part of the clan, and although many think we are. This would have been exclusively K's if it wasn't for Crystal I Ball's last name. I up, guys. Yeah. Well, thank you for Sorry. that, by the way. <laughs> I'll just see myself thank now. Thank you to Crystal's father for not making this the Ku Klux Klan hour. We appreciate that. Um, so I was actually talking with Crystal about this the other day. There was one story 
that I think it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like your first really huge story that blew up. And, um, I forgot the details of it. Wasn't it like something with Puerto Rico and the, explain everybody that one because I want them to hear about it. Yeah. So this was after, um, hurricane Maria yes. had just devastated it. And this is the worst case of like disaster capitalism, uh, run amok, which is that, you know, they desperately need at that point state intervention, but they don't have the sort of lobby. I mean, they're not a state. They don't have a representative in Congress. They don't have a Senator to you know push for these kind of things. So, um, the, uh, what was it? It was a story about the electric grid and how mm. the, it had been a government utility and they essentially privatized it and then boom, suddenly, you know, huge numbers of people that you would, I mean, it, it became like something that we would see about when Marco Rubio was trying to push for intervention in Venezuela. It's like, you know, millions of people without electricity, all these horrible things, which were all true. But like the genesis of this was the privatization of this utility instead of treating it as a, you know, publicly owned uh, and weren't there like scam one. contracts that the Trump administration was handing out basically where they were giving like millions of dollars to these contractors. And then when you went and, and checked what was going on with those contractors, it was like it was two dudes in a shed in Oklahoma and they had no ability to do Who the things they contracted for. Who just happened to be for. top political donors right, yeah. to yeah. relevant Republican candidates. Yeah, exactly. It was something like two people and they only it, – it, it was like a, the amount of electric wire that they ended up laying, which is the whole purpose of their, their whole reason of being – was like some comically low amount, like it only serviced maybe like a couple percent of people in the in the country. And everybody picked that up, right? Didn't every news outlet, like the big ones, New York Times, Washington Post, didn't everybody pick that story up? It was huge, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've always been talking about um, the sort of deleterious effects of uh, privatization on just ordinary everyday people. Unfortunately, in, in a case like this, I think that it was kind of like, Trump was the sort of useful bad guy. Right. It was a way to vote Trump. It up. Yeah, that's exactly. why they picked it up. Because that was something I wanted to ask you about. How do you, um, what is your relationship like with the mainstream media? Because it seems like one of two things happens. In this particular instance, there was a Trump angle, so they were happy to blow it up. But a lot of times they'll either just ignore, like, I'll be curious if they say anything about this um, scoop you have on Verizon. They'll either just ignore it. Or like four years later, they'll pretend that it's their own original reporting. Yeah. Like, we just found this yeah. out. This is amazing. Yeah. And never give you attribution for the fact that you did the work, you did the light, you were the first to expose it. And they'll just, you know, pretend like that never happened. Yeah. And, you know, to some extent, I wear that as a badge of pride because uh, they don't want, I mean, I know there these institutions are not monolithic. There are good people at any, uh, virtually, any, you know, even. Of course. Even, even like far right wings ones sometimes have like decent people working on things and, uh, you know, extreme ones. And so uh, someone in the Times was telling me, take it as a compliment because they're, they see themselves as sort of like the arbiter of all media. And if you scoop them, they're so embarrassed by that that they don't want anyone to know. So they're mm. desperately going to try to not mention and ne neglect to mention where, where this stuff came from so that people kind of think, oh, this was the Times thing. They figured this all out. Um, so I guess I have a sort of uneasy relationship with them where I feel like they kind of grudgingly respect that I get scoops, which unfortunately is it, it, less and less of something that the media focuses on. So if you look at the Times, um, so much of it is, uh, or maybe the Times isn't a great example, but there's so much just kind of like, what is the press secretary said, picking apart kind mm. of official Washington versus what's happening covertly. And I don't just mean covert in the national security sense, but covert as in this story we were just talking about now. What is business doing behind the scenes to try to advance its, its Which goals? Which is the real story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, um, I think we both played on our shows this clip of Fat Shakir with Heidi Heitkamp on CNN where he's Heidi Heitkamp has been, you know, taking she gets paid now to basically fight for rich people to 
have low taxes. Um, she particularly was fighting back against changing the uh, step-up basis, which is a major way that the wealthiest among us avoid any taxes whatsoever. And so Faz very nicely points out, you know, uh, Senator Heitkamp does receive money to have this position, and that's something that I'm worried about in this process. And the CNN anchor rushes in to defend Senator Heitkamp's honor, which, I mean, first of all, it should never have to fall to Faz to disclose what is an obvious conflict of interest in terms of her perspective in this segment. And then the way that this anchor um, rushes in to make sure that, you know, we can't possibly actually talk about the money that's flowing in this town and the way that business interests and wealthy interests are moving heaven and earth to shape this bill. I thought that was quite revelatory about why uh, so much of the media misses some of the big stories that for you, for example, are able to, to hone in on. Yeah, they've had to make a deal in a certain regard. And again, I'm talking about the institutions generally. Yeah. Um, they you know, rely on um, particularly the White House, a dirty secret of the times of big papers like that is that they have a certain relationship with the White House. They'll get exclusives and those kind of things. And if you come out and say something like you were mentioning about high camp or something, you might imperil those relationships mm. and lose access to those exclusives. I never had that access. So there's nothing for me to lose. I don't care. <laughs> right. I don't give a shit, you know. Right. And you, you often, don't care if I yeah. camp's mad at you. Exactly. <laughs> you often hear from like whistleblowers within the intelligence agencies or workers or, you know, you, you're known as the... F-O-I-A King, right? FOIA King. I still say F-O-I-A. I kept saying FOIA seems weird to me. Really? Anyway, that's a side saying point. Saying F-O-I-A sounds weird to me. <laughs> Does anyway, it? Really? Okay. I'm, I guess I'm an, <laughs> act, I'm an active <laughs> person. Um, but so uh, to Crystal's question earlier, do you sense a trend with which stories are totally ignored by mainstream media and which ones aren't? Because I'm going through your stories here. For example, the Pentagon warned the White House in 2017 about the risk of shortages and ill preparation for a pandemic brought about by a novel, by a novel coronavirus virus such as COVID-19. Um, and then you also have, you obtained an FBI document that stated the Washington field office, quote, has no intelligence indicating Antifa involvement or presence during DC area protests in contradiction to Attorney General William Barr. Do you notice that like almost all the stories under Trump were picked up because they sort of wrecked the Trump administration and now the ones under Biden are not? What what uh, trend do you sense? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, things are slotted into this um, partisan prism. And when I get these sources, I think a large component of the luck that I've had with that is that a lot of people don't fit into either of those prisms. There's right. a hell of a lot of people that just, they're not resistance and they're not MAGA. There's just a lot of people like that. Yeah. And I've seen uh, sometimes reporters have said, oh, this guy's trying to advance this view or this view. And it's like, you really, have you ever met someone outside of DC? A lot of people just don't, either they don't care or they find the entire thing disgusting and distasteful and they want to kind of check out. There's a whole lot of civil servants like that that just want to do the job and they find all this stuff really irritating. And those tend to be the folks that come to me. Well, that is one of the things that um, that I think is really interesting. I mean, maybe it should be obvious to take this approach, but a lot of your scoops with regards to national security you're getting rank and file folks. Exactly. So it's not the fancy people at the top. I mean, you talk about people who have an agenda and want to push a particular, you know, ideological perspective. Oftentimes that is the people who are in the upper echelons of these agencies. 
But a lot of times your reporting seems to come from the workers who are lower level, the rank and file, who reach out to you and have some story to tell about what they're seeing doing the work on the ground. Yeah, what's amazing, I have a friend who was working on a national security story for the Times, and he was having a lot of frustration getting it through because what they he had several sources verifying what he, what he found. Uh, but what they wanted was sign off from someone at the very top, at the cabinet oh. level, that kind of thing. And I think that's a norm at a lot of these major papers. Sure I'm not it saying is. that it's necessarily yeah. on, pay, you know, it's it's an official rule or anything. But the attitude is, you know, if someone from very high up doesn't sign off on it, Whoa. I don't know how conscious this is, but it's like, you know, we don't want to piss them off or uh, maybe they believe that it's not true. But that's going to miss a whole lot of stories because people at what's called in the national security world, the senior executive service level or the cabinet level, they've got a whole different set of interests than people, not even at the bottom, but pe- a lot of my are like fairly high up. They're just not quite at the political appointee level mm. or cabinet level or, or SES level necessarily. Um, and so when you only, you get the same problems that you get with reporting generally that relies on the rich and powerful and well-connected, you're just not getting the whole picture. And I don't even know if it's conscious. It's just, if you only talk to, you know, those certain types of people, you're going to get a much sunnier picture of things generally. And that's how you have catastrophes like, um, uh, not understanding how quickly the um, Afghan government would fall, which I think a lot of serious people could have told you if you had just asked, you know, an academic, for instance, that follows these things closely. If you're just talking to guys, that Chomsky top, predicted it, right? Mm. There, it, it's every conflict that happens almost immediately because they're so corrupt and, and out of touch. These client governments that we create. So um, when you're only talking to these people at the very top, th- th- they may themselves believe that things are going great because that's what they're having to brief their boss on and saying, "Oh, everything's wonderful, everything's mm. so good," and that just gives you a really inaccurate and warped picture of how things you know, work generally, I think. You, um, I'm going through all your stories here. You really do have heavy hitters one after the other. You're one of the people who, like, I can sort of reliably expect something that piques my interest when I see your stuff in the same way I feel like Sirota falls into that category as well. It's almost a guarantee that whatever he puts out, I'm going to be like, oh, that's interesting. So just to give everybody a little bit of the business here, uh, like you said, Verizon asked employees to help kill corporate tax increases. I covered this next one. Senator Kirsten Sinema is literally teaching a course on fundraising. That was something, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, Afghan resistance leaders long backed by CIA have fled following Taliban takeover, sort of sh- showing how propped up and ridiculous. I wish that was a better, bigger one because people are talking about going back in there. Lindsey Graham is literally uh, meeting with these leaders saying, oh, there's a resistance there that we can fund. And it's like, dude, they Just fled like the country. Shalabi in Iraq. Remember same that? Ahmed Shalabi in Iraq. Oh, he'll be the president. He had like three people who exactly. supported him in the entire exact country. same thing. The Taliban have seized U.S. military biometrics uh, devices. Oh. I mean, it, CIA drove spike in media leak investigation requests under Trump. Military removes training documents. Oh, this is because of you, right? You So you leaked a story that that showed that the military was conflating socialists with terrorists yeah. in some Navy training document or something. And now, and now the military removed that training document probably because of your reporting. Correct? Right. Yes. And one of the biggest frustrations of mine over the last several years has been this idea that, um, uh, uh, you know, this this counter extremism push is only going to hurt the far right wing. That's absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know the guys. I have access to their. You know, I, I published in 2017 their counterterrorism priority lists. There were left wing groups there too. There was they mentioned Black Lives Matter. They were talking about using confidential informants to penetrate these groups. It's just not true that this is going to be applied in any sort of even assuming they're liberals. They're under a lot of pressure to create a sort of equivalency that gives them deniability to go before Congress and say we're going after both groups. You see, we're not biased. And to your point, and this is actually what Greenwald was saying, is that January 6th is sort of like the thing that they can use to justify 
giving themselves much more entrenched power in the same way that after 9-11, you had the Patriot Act. And at the time, it was political suicide to say, I'm against the Patriot Act. And they say, what are you, unpatriotic? What are you, crazy? And so the same sort of lines of argument are used to justify cracking down harsher. Because if you don't want to crack down harsher, it's like, what are you, soft on white supremacist terrorism? Right. But to your point, if Black Lives Matter is on the list and they conflate socialists with terrorists, what are we really talking about here? We're talking about anybody who really has an outsider ideology sort of being, you know, uh, red-listed, even though I think I just made up the term red-listed. But go on. (laughs) (laughs) Can... In your reporting, look, every president effectively abuses their power, whatever powers they inherit from the previous one. They seek to expand those powers. I mean, we've seen this pattern over and over again through Democratic and Republican presidents. But there was a lot of focus during the Trump years on the ways in which his administration operated in a different manner, especially the quote-unquote deep state, the Defense Department, the CIA, all of these um, agencies What did you see or did you see um, fundamental sort of like norms being broken, things that you found to be legitimately concerning and dangerous that were different from what other administrations had done? What I saw was a a full-scale exploitation of the powers that the Department of Homeland Security had and which they've had vested in them since their um, inception. Uh, Recall, this is a post-9-11 agency created Mm -hmm. in response to that and what it was designed to do legally. And I don't think we appreciated the full extent of this until we saw someone like Trump, who's really a stress test on uh, kind of the the civil liberties protections that we have, because he's really willing to exploit this to the full extent. To give you an example, sending federal troops to um, Portland, Oregon, um, in opposition of uh, local and, and, and state government there, which mm. is really shocking. I mean, yeah. for a Republican, I mean, for how many years has their line been, you know, states' rights, so on and so forth? Right. The governor was coming out and saying, we don't want these guys. He says, too bad. We're sending them in because you're not taking care of, you know, crime or whatever it was he was saying. The Insurrection but, Act is what he used, right? Yes. Which was like a slave era law. This is really, this is really extraordinary um, and a sort of blueprint for uh, how going forward, uh, people who, um, one of the most dangerous figures in that administration that I don't think got enough attention because Trump just pulled so much air out of the room was William Barr, who himself has been a unitary executive, you know that term? Yeah. yeah. Dick Cheney being sort of the most infamous example of this, a huge believer in unitary executive theory. I don't know how much uh, Trump believed in that, but the idea, this theory he is- He believed in it for himself. Yes. Totally. <laughs> is that the president is, is, is um, there aren't three co-equal branches of government. The executive is above all the others, and that's exactly how they behaved. And the agency they went to do it, and I know a lot of people in Justice Department that will tell you they tried to, and you know we see some public reporting this effect where Trump is leaning on them, trying to get them to do things with the, um, uh, you know, elections, trying to recounts things like that. The place he really succeeded wasn't the Justice Department because they have a lot of sort of internal rules and just norms, and certain attitudes. I mean, we can laugh about them because it is sort of silly, but they do kind of they want to think of themselves as neutral. You know, right. Department of Homeland Security was designed to be politically. Um, responsive uh, in, in, in a speed and in an intensity that the other agencies weren't. And, and that's exactly the role they played under the Trump administration where he says, you know, I need a bunch of knuckle draggers to go out and do this deeply unpopular stuff, send CBP uh, BORTAC agents, that's like their special for- version of special forces, to, to go and unmark cars and arrest protesters. Which agency is going to do that? DHS steps up because they are, they're just, they don't have the um, guardrails and the sort of um, culture internally to protect against doing something like that. I know for a fact that he tried to get DOJ to do some of these things and they were just, no, this is crazy. We're not going to do this. So he went to wow. DHS instead. So Barr actually stood as a bulwark against some of the worst aspects of what Trump wanted to do. I think that's true, yeah. Wow. Yikes. Well, and I, d- I do think um, <laughs> I'd like you to talk a little bit more about Bill Barr because I think some of the liberal analysis of, 
analysis of him wasn't quite correct because their assumption was just, oh, he's a Trump guy. He loves Trump. He's going to do whatever Trump wants him to do. When in reality, he's a deeply ideological actor and has his own sort of like idea of how things should be independent and separate from Trump. Can you talk about that? And do you agree with that? No, I don't agree with the notion that he's just um, subsumed into Trumpism. I mean, he used Trump as a vehicle, but this is a very wealthy individual who's been in administrations going back to George H.W. Bush, Mm. um, at which time he was doing very similar things where he was sending federal troops. I believe it was to... um, I believe it was to Puerto Rico or one of the one of the Caribbean U.S. Uh, island um, uh, territories there against local wishes again and mm. creating the legal basis for this that he would end up using for uh, for Portland. And so this guy's been in this lab kind of creating this uh, sort of uh, legal approach. And he goes back to, you know, uh, Cheney and the old Republicans. I mean, I really liken him to a Cheney kind of figure, the brains of the operation, because whatever Trump wanted to do, he didn't know how to navigate the uh, political uh, or the sort of national security apparatus is very complex, very complicated. It's probably all new to him. You know, this guy did. Right. You know, so he was more competent in that respect. Totally. Whereas you see Trump, like, you know, the classic, remember the phone call to what was it? The, um, was the attorney general Secretary in, of State. in Georgia or secretary of state <laughs> in Georgia? He's like, listen, I need you to go out there and find me X number of votes. Right. Like, <laughs> That's not the way Barr would have approached that. It would have been a lot more smooth <laughs> if he was going down that path. Um, I see you report a microwave weapon concerns spread to Department of Homeland Security. So this is about the Havana syndrome thing. Now, Crystal and I have talked about this quite a bit. Uh, she did a deep dive into it. And uh, I'll be the one who says it, and you guys can tell me I'm right or wrong here, but isn't it just total bullshit? Isn't there like no evidence for it? Well, I think this notion that um, these foreign states like Russia, I mean, I was talking to a, you know, very senior former uh, uh, case officer. He, he ran the, he ran the Russia, um, uh, he, he was like, had a, he was, this, it's called chief of station mm-hmm. in Russia. And he was telling me, he was very skeptical of this notion that these countries would be doing this stuff consciously targeting um, our guys just because we are a lot more powerful. And then when we respond, then we might, you know, do the same thing back to them. So it was his view that there might be a more subtle kind of um, middle ground where there is something happening, but it's unintentional. So for example, when we conduct surveillance of people, um, you know, uh, perhaps there's something happening with the um, apparatus that we use to target them that's having an unintended effect on, on, on them. Well, tell the cricket story. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this I'm is sure my you understanding of this. Havana syndrome. I'm sure you follow this. It was, there's a group of like elite scientists that advise, um, uh, the department of defense on these sorts of issues. And they came out with a report that we just found out about that was like, we think it was crickets. <laughs> So they released this thing saying, like, this is the sound of the microwave weapon that's given these right, poor so, people Havana right, Syndrome. Right, so the original incidents in Cuba, which is where Havana Syndrome comes from, um, the people who were involved were like, we heard this sound, and then we had these symptoms. And they had an audio recording of the sound. And so they had these experts, um, I can't remember, I, I can't remember if it was State Department or DOD. Anyway, they had these this expert panel of scientists analyze this, and they were like, this is definitely crickets. And that that information only came out now into the public because BuzzFeed did a FOIA request, and this ultimately get, got released. But this was never told to the public of like, well, at least the noise part we're not sure about. And it's just, you know, I mean, it's a pretty fantastic uh, theory to say with not any evidence. This is Russian spies using maybe microwave right, rays yeah. 
targeting our people when there just isn't, there at least hasn't publicly been presented any evidence that that is actually the case. Well, I think that's the problem. So you say publicly. Um, the problem with these agencies and why we should be skeptical sometimes of the conclusions that they come to is that they don't have the same peer review mechanisms that we associate with, obviously, the best example being science, but um, even academia, at least we can openly look at, you know, where are your assumptions here, how are you coming to these conclusions. All this stuff is being conducted in secret. And so it's really hard to even know what is even being alleged. Right. You know? Well, and it obviously fits into this whole, like, you know, the Russia narrative and all of that. I mean, it feeds a certain audience. It continues to justify, like, ah, this is why the world is scary and why we need all of this power. It's almost like so a, it serves a potential narrative there. It feels like a Rorschach test. I started asking people I know in the counterintelligence community after this stuff was coming out maybe a year or two ago uh, what they thought. And if you talk to a uh, person that works on Chinese counterintelligence, ca uh, catching uh, Chinese spies, they would say, oh, it's the Chinese. You talk to a Russian one, they're like, it's the Russians. Right. You talk yeah. to somebody that focuses on Latin America, let's say it's the Cubans. <laughs> so it's almost like, yeah, it's a Rorschach test. Just like when you ask the generals, hey, uh, where are we at in Iraq and Afghanistan? And this happened back with the LBJ in Vietnam. Hey, where are we at in Vietnam? They say, we need more time. We need more money. We need more troops. Just trust us. Because when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So their answer to everything is more military, more invasion, more war. Um, so you... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong here. Didn't you come out with the the leak that Amazon drivers were peeing in bottles and even shitting in bags? Yes, and I appreciate that choice of words. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about that. How'd you get that oh, information? Uh, what's I mean, crazy? So I cover, you know I cover the CIA and the intelligence agencies, and I would felt more uh, you know depressed and and de demoralized from from labor stories like this one than I do from the intelligence agencies which really says something but yeah I mean it speaks for itself I found internal documents within the company because at the time they were uh, somebody had somebody had alleged this and and the uh, press secretary for them I think it's Jay Carney who was an Obama administration mm -hmm. spokesperson came on said this isn't I don't know if it was him but it was the Amazon PR account it was like yeah. this isn't true why would people work for us if they had to do these things and I was really angry about that because I knew it was I mean obviously you well, and they were very, I think it was Mark Pocan who had sent That's out right. some tweet that yep. they responded right. to in yeah. this very snarky, like, you don't still believe that peeing in bottles thing, do you? That's literally what they said. Yeah. yeah. So I did a call out for tips and it was just an avalanche of angry employees. Really? Wow. Yeah. So many sympathetic, apolitical employees, progressive employees that were angry that they're using this as a, you know, battering ram against the progressives in Congress. And what I got I mean, was- I I feel like peeing in bottles is not really a partisan issue. Yeah. <laughs> it right. shouldn't be. <laughs> right. It shouldn't be. So I got bags is though. That's not true. Yeah, very hard. <laughs> well, that was what else I found in the course of it. It's even worse. So, you know, I think I of myself guess. as a pretty, you know, cynical person when it comes to, you know, b business practices and just from the stuff I see. So I found it significantly worse. Not only were they uh, urinating these bottles, there, there, there were plenty of cases where they were doing this like multiple times a day routinely for weeks and weeks. And so what I found was internal documentation showing that they had formalized a process for punishments when people were caught doing this. And it's like, well, why do you think they're doing it? It's because they can't meet. And I interviewed so many people for this. They could, literally couldn't meet quotas without doing it. And so um, it, it seemed that the policies they had in place were to get people to hide it so that the public wouldn't see it, you know? And so um, not only um, was this in fact happening, they knew that it was happening because senior management uh, uh, had this entire system in place to to punish people if they if they if they got caught doing it. They had a troll army too, right? Didn't they like buy all these fake uh, Twitter accounts and they would have them rush out and argue with people and say, I work at Amazon and I love my job. <laughs> right? Isn't yeah. They had a they had a secret program. It almost reminded me of reporting on the intelligence community how secretive it all was. Mm. Um, uh, they had a code name for it. It was um, 
it was, uh, I can't remember, it's called Operation Something. And, um, and, and under this program, they were trying to find employees who could do funny, snarky tweets to clap back at the Amazon haters. And it was a whole program. It wasn't like a tiny thing. And they were thinking about, um, you know, operationalizing this across the entire company so they could uh, try to push the Amazon agenda. Jesus Christ. And people thought they were bots, but these were real people. They were, they were paid to do this. They were being paid to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they were real people who actually work at Amazon. Paid propagandists for Amazon, basically. But they're getting paid to, and listen, I mean, if you're working at Amazon, those um, warehouse floor jobs are brutal. And they're like, hey, we'll pay a little more. And you send out some snarky social media posts like, who among us wouldn't take some time off of the uh, warehouse floor in order to to send out a few irrelevant snarky social media? Yeah, posts. they were encouraged to say, "Oh, here I work in this warehouse." But um, what they what they what they couldn't say, they couldn't talk about unions. They couldn't say anything about unions and don't even respond to those. That's what the internal guidance said. That's what was funny is they had an example, right, of like things you can respond to and yes. things you should just totally leave yeah. alone. Yeah, no, be a total edge lord about this stuff and dunk on the progressives and everything, but don't talk about unions. Just don't say anything about it. What does that say to you? I mean, does that tell you that they actually feel some vulnerability totally. around unionization? Because, I mean, obviously they crush that Bessemer Drive, um, you know, very easily, although the uh, union has successfully uh, won their dispute at the NLRB and there may be a new election there. But do you think that they see this as an actual possibility and a real threat? 100%. And I think that's an important point for progressives to understand because uh, in the discourse I see around this, it just seems very... Um, pessimistic about everything, but they wouldn't be, they they wouldn't be, corporations are not in the business of spending money where they don't have to, Mm. you know, they wouldn't be investing all these resources if they didn't perceive an authentic threat. Hmm. Why shouldn't the law be, I just came up with this right now because I'm a genius. Mm. Why shouldn't the law be that if you cheat in the union election, that now the default is actually we're going to have a union. union. Yeah. Why why shouldn't that be the law? It should be. Actually, um... Irami Osei from Pong, who, a great friend of our show, friend of Breaking Points and personal friend of mine, um, he really believes that the default should be, even before an election, a union. That should be the default. And then you, you know, can maybe have an election to opt out of that. But right, sort of like a soft union mandate that you can kind of get out yeah, of if you're really committed to getting out of it. Right? Obviously, the way that the system is set up right now it's just absurdly rigged. And, you know, if you're in a place like Bessemer, Alabama, and you see the way that these companies like Amazon and many others operate with impunity, where, yeah, you're not supposed to be able to retaliate against workers. You're not supposed to be able to just close the plant down because of a union drive, but they do it all the time. So it's entirely logical that you look at that state of affairs in a place where, you know, the jobless rate is pretty high and poverty is pretty high and say, I guess I'm, I'm better off just keeping my mouth shut and not unionizing because there are real risks here to me and my livelihood. So let me just say real quick, I forget which Nordic country it is, but one of the Nordic countries has near uh, universal unionization among the workforce. And they do so well for the workers that they don't even have a minimum wage law on the books. Because right. the, the wow. lowest wage is above what an actual minimum wage would be. And conservatives will hold a well, they don't even have a minimum wage right, law. Look at how high their wages are. And it's like, yeah, they have universal <laughs> yeah. unionization. I'll take that. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, what did you find, though? It was interesting, your comment about how your reporting on Amazon reminded you of your reporting in intelligence agencies like just draw that out what was what were the similarities that you saw from a reporter's perspective just the extreme secrecy in the way 
that they um, sort of uh, a point I'm always trying to make is that um, in in certain respects the CIA is more open than a lot of private industry uh, because you know I could file a FOIA request if they don't respond to the FOIA request I can sue and you know at that point I'll often get something back uh, maybe not as much as I'd like but uh, provide some sort of insight into what's going on in addition to that uh, we have a a uh, system that's set up where after 20 or 30 years, there's different tiers, things get declassified. We have a pretty rich documentary record, historically speaking. If you want to learn about the Bay of Pigs, for instance, a lot of that stuff is pr pretty open, uh, uh, perhaps more so than any other country that I'm aware of. So that's, you know, that's, that's an, uh, obviously, I'd, you know, I always want more. I'd like it to be more open. But that's a, if you compare that to the private system, you can't FOIA a, a uh, private corporation. Yeah. Th there's no mm. presumption of transparency she whatsoever. It's a total right. black box. And they get all this federal money and grants and things. Um, and, 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 but, but uh, none, none of the same rules apply to, you know, other ways that uh, uh, U.S. tax dollars are spent in, in federal agencies. Yeah. I mean, you see right now, I just saw the headline this morning that Facebook's basically like clamping down on their internal communications. To avoid any future whistleblowers, I, I know, that's what you have to rely on is well, these leakers and whistleblowers. I have sources that um, had worked counterintelligence against catching spies and then are hired by these corporations to do counterintelligence within um, the the business. And I and I'm you know I'm asking them like, what's the counterintelligence for a business? Like spies are like, well, that's part of it, but also leakers. And I was like, leakers to who? And it's like, well, to guys like you. Oh my <laughs> god! And so they'll wow. actually use these guys and just developing these. Um, I, I know they're pitching these methods. Uh, I'll give you an example. They can actually watermark a um, a Zoom call where they can do some kind of low frequency, I don't know, a certain amount of megahertz that will sort of um, tag uh, that recording. So if a recording gets leaked, you can tell which computer it came from the, based on the frequency of the of the set. So really, Maybe it, that's it's what Havana syndrome is called. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Callback. It, it's it's hard to know how much of this is sort of like grifters trying to say, hey, here's the secret, you know, here, here's this here's the snake oil that's going to solve your 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 media leak problems. Mm. But it's really extraordinary uh, some of the some of the tools they're at least uh, discussing and 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 considering working with. Wow, yeah, they'd love to make an example of uh, of people when they leak. Um, so before I want to I want to talk to him about his using Wikipedia's terminology controversies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but before I do that, do you, do you have anything else that you want to get yeah, to on the series Yeah, I want to talk to you a little Go bit ahead. more about um, FOIA requests because that's you're very famous for your excellent FOIA requests and the information that you're able to glean from them. Talk to me through about that process, especially the inception. Like, how do you get the idea of like, I'm going to FOIA that? Where does that come from? It usually comes from sources. And that's my that's my dirty uh, secret because a lot of people come into it saying, where do I send this to? I want to get stuff. And it's like, it doesn't quite. So I always say um, it's called the Freedom of Information Act, but that's sort of a misnomer. We have a Freedom of Records Act mm -hmm. and you have to know what the records are called. And how does any ordinary person know what the document showing, um, for example, let's say there was an after action report. Uh, after the Soleimani strike that could tell you, provide some insight into, you know, uh, how we conducted it, why we did it, that kind of thing. Um, how are you going to know what the after action report is called, what part of the agency it's located in? These are all questions you have to have the answer to or else you're not going to have very much luck. So a lot of the times I'm being guided by somebody either on the inside or recently on the inside who, you know, people go retire mm. and they go So consult. they'll tell you there's something interesting potentially here. Exactly. And here's the exact document that you need to ask for yeah. because otherwise it'd be impossible to know what, what you specific them, thing you should request. You give them a lot, uh, you give these agencies um, a lot of ways to play games if you're not extremely specific. So for example, if I said, I want to learn about the Soleimani strike in a good faith 
world, they would say, well, he might want the after action report. That'll tell him what happened. They're not going to tell me that. Right. They're going to say, oh, well, he asked about the Soleimani strike. Let's give him some like uh, press releases about it or mm. something. And yeah. it's like, well, we tried. We gave you what we, we thought of. Was there anything yeah. on that or no? On that? Yeah. I don't know. That's just an example. Maybe I'll look over that for sure. What do you consider your greatest FOIA find? Uh, <laughs> I'm biased in favor of the funniest one. So I'll tell you, uh, I mean, you just mentioned today. Uh, um, earlier this week, the Times had a story based on my FOIA from 2017 when I saw Trump. When, uh, it was I never understood why the primary focus of foreign influence was Russia. I'm not saying that you know the, uh, the stuff wasn't happening there and that that wasn't worth looking into, but um, I, I was curious. <laughs> I, I was curious about the Gulf states because his first foreign visit yeah. wasn't to Russia; it was to Riyadh, and that's yeah. the first time a president has ever not visited a neighboring country, either um, namely Mexico or Canada. So that was extremely interesting to me. Within days of his visit there. I was like, oh, this is going to be gold. These are two of the most transactional people you can even imagine. Yeah. The Saudi uh, leadership and Donald Trump. I'm thinking, do you know what kind of gifts? So I called a friend who worked in the State Department uh, for a number of years. And she said to me, she said, go to their, um, uh, an illustration of what I was describing, the process I was describing before. She says, go to their um, office of the chief of protocol, obscure term. I never, I was like, who are they? She said, they handle the gifts uh, uh, list and they have to, they have to, um, uh, register anything they receive from a foreign government worth uh, above a certain amount with the office of the chief of protocol. So I sent it there. I said, office chief of protocol, I want the list of gifts. What I get back, you can't make up. It was like gold coins, daggers, paintings of Donald Trump, paintings but, of Saudi women, yeah. like all this ridiculous stuff. <laughs> and so the Times this week ended up following up on that story. Um, and, and they found that he actually kept some of these things worth you know, large sums of money because a lot of it was very valuable and that's illegal. You're not able to, you're, if you keep things that are worth, that are, it, it's explicitly, uh, the, the constitution even has a clause in it because they don't want foreign influence happening. Uh, they don't want people giving, you know, uh, our leaders, uh, you know, this kind of very extravagant things and then expecting things in return. And the, the Times credited you for your reporting there, right? Yeah. The reporter did to his credit and he oh, called he me and apologized. Yeah, but oh, okay. after, after, oh, the, after people were like, after what, the media, what are you doing? Right. Yeah, well, of course. And by the way, if there wasn't that Twitter backlash, you wouldn't have done it, which is pathetic. But to your point, because I remember talking about this quite a bit at the time, um, I forgot, I forget who covered this, but uh, apparently Trump took through his DC hotel hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think $300,000 was uh, the amount from Saudi Arabia. And it was under the guise of, oh, we're gonna invite some troops there to have like a getaway weekend or something. It was some gathering for, for the US troops. And so they funneled $300,000 to him. And then it was soon thereafter that there was the approval of the multi-billion dollar weapons deal. And so to your point about the constitution, I remember when everybody was talking about impeaching him over the, the Ukraine phone call, I thought that that case was relatively weak, given that you have him dead to rights on the emoluments clause. I mean, Jimmy Carter had to sell his peanut farm because they said that might present an opportunity for somebody to influence you. Here you have Trump still owning his hotel, getting hundreds of thousands of dollars from a, a theocracy and a dictatorship, and then doing favors for them. That's the thing right there. And so your reporting was very similar along those lines. I think it may have been the New York Times that got that number, but I don't remember. Well, there's one small problem with going after uh, Gulf influence, which is that you're going to qu pretty quickly bump into a whole lot of other powerful people that are receiving things from these Gulf states in a way that that's not quite the case with uh, Russia and Ukraine and these other countries. I mean, mm -hmm. we were talking about CNN before. They're literally running puff pieces for the Emiratis. Credit to Adam Johnson, I who found that and. Yeah. I did a monologue on that. You did a monologue on that. I covered it recently because Brian Stelter did this sanctimonious rant about how pff, 
look, we're the good guys in media, and Fox News is the bad guys, and you you know, we're, what do you say, reporters and, and repeaters? repeaters? Yeah, we're and the reporters, the... they're the repeaters, they copy Trump all the time, we tell the truth. <laughs> and here's yeah. our map of our bureau locations, right. that tells you how serious and we then, are. Meanwhile, again, Adam Johnson, detail, excruciating detail over the past 10 months, like here's 106 articles doing flat out puff pieces on the UAE, which is a, a dictatorship. Right. Just yes. The thing to remember about these countries, I think, is that, um, uh, you know, unlike the adversaries we traditionally think of as, as adversaries, you know, uh, Russia, Iran, China, um, they don't have really a military. They don't have an intelligence service. I mean, technically they do, but not in any serious sense. They don't have a lot of the uh, things we usually think of as, as, as the components of statecraft. What they have is a ton of liquid assets and money right. that they can use. To, and so that is how they conduct their statecraft. And to me, that poses um, at least as much of a threat as the folks... Um, that uh, we're sort of designed to protect ourselves against. Um, but then there are these putative allies that you don't, we don't have the posture to protect ourselves from because they're not believed to be an adversary. Mm. And so it really leaves us open, I think, in a lot of ways. One amazing detail from this uh, New York Times gift story is that one of the things that Trump was gifted was these um, furs. They were like exotic furs. And then they tested them and they were <laughs> fake. <laughs> I think they tested them because it would have been illegal because of uh, because of poaching laws yes. to even have these things. Right, <laughs> which so is another they were funny. Died to mimic tiger and cheetah, <laughs> cheetah patterns, but they were in fact fake. It's like Trump. The thing. It's like there's so many layers. Like it's illegal. It should be illegal, and then you do the you find out that it's actually fake. And anyway, incredible. Um, so can I ask about the go controversies ahead, go ahead. yet? Okay, so this is this we is could talk about fun. Elon Musk. This is so cancel, fun. Okay. Cancel culture <laughs> amok. That's who I wanted to start with because look, let me just give everybody my general breakdown. This might get me ratioed to high heaven. I simply don't care. My bullshit meter was always going whenever Elon Musk talked, and people were like, "Oh, oh, Elon Musk! Oh, he's gonna save the world! Oh, yes!" He I was always this, like, "What are you guys talking he about?" Has this pull on a certain type of man that it's like almost like a religious. It obsession is like a pope him. kind of. I you right. know what I always call it. I always said he's he's like the Muqtada El Seder of of of, of Reddit libertarians. That's what I always called him. Yes, Chris that. and I are the only people who get that reference, but I think it's <laughs> probably the best comment ever made. Um, so tell me how. First of all, how did like the feud start? Like, what happened? Did you report something on him that was accurate and negative, and then, or were you just tweeting at him? Like, what happened? I honestly can't even remember. This <laughs> just is not to, as much to the front of my mind as it apparently is to him. Well, I do remember you tweet a picture of him with uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. That's why. That's, that's right. During the indict, when she was indicted, I think. Right. Yeah. And I so, think that was. I don't know if that's the very beginning, but that was when things really. So yeah. I don't know what he spiraled. said, but yeah, apparently. You tweeted at him when he said something, a picture from 2014 of him with, however you say your name, the, the Jeffrey Epstein's associate. Uh-huh. And um, so then he, I don't know if he did it immediately, but later on, somebody tweeted him and asked about you, and he called you the, quote, douche about town. <laughs> <laughs> And then the one I really took offense to, because it was just so phoned in. If you're going to come at me, do something worthy of, like, it, it's just so, like, where there's no, where's the craftsmanship? No one cares about trolls anymore. He just he wasn't even trying. He did this, he stole this meme that somebody replied to him with, with Ralph Wiggum, where he says, I'm helping. And then he took it and it put my face on it and said, I'm a journalist. And it's like the, okay, first of all, the Ralph Wiggum meme, that's like 10, that's like 10 years past right, its yeah. sell by date. <laughs> and then the fact that he just stole it without credit from one of his adoring fans He's very Trumpian. He strikes me as very Trumpian. Yeah. And also, there's, it's funny because there's a lot of like very libertarian types who love him. 
but he's swimming in government money. Totally. He got so many subsidies oh, from the yeah. federal totally. government, and more than half of his ideas come to naught. Like, wasn't he talking about building some amazing infrastructure, some you know way to get from point A to point B in California? We're going to build a thing under the ground and make it go really fast, and then like we and we'll wake like up a, three years later. How many things? Like a tunnel. <laughs> That's the mo of so many of his. Uh, do you remember when the uh, Thai kids were caught in the cave, and he was, he was talking about designing a submarine or something to go save them, and yes. it just never happened. That's in right. the media, they run all of this. Um, all these what would seem to me to be just puff pieces for here's our you know angelic Elon Musk knows here's our angelic savior yeah. yeah and then it's like what happened to that did you follow up on that did yeah. he end up doing it no one seems to care and he called one of the guys a pedo one of the people who saved he literally the kids. called the guy that did yeah. go in who saved in, him in a, a scuba outfit and saved and rescued these kids he 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 accused him of being a pedo he was oh like why God. else would you be a you know in like a westerner in Thailand or something what yeah oh my God there was a defamation suit over it too really yeah. Jeez. You can't, you're a billionaire with a zillion followers. What are you, you doing? You can't just hurl accusations of what pedophilia at right. people. Um, have you faced any uh, pushback or upset from your any of your employers over your social media um, game? Incredibly, no. Well, no, actually, that's why they love you. That's why they love you is because your your social media. Because you attract a lot of eyeballs, get a lot of attention, and then you use that and hook people in for substantive political stories. So that's sort of like the, you know, the secret sauce. I mean, you can't hire Ken Klippenstein without knowing that, you know, at some point you're going to change your name to exact. like Matt Gates is a pedo. Control <laughs> yeah. him or, I think that's exactly right. right. Or yeah. get in a fight with Elon like, well, Musk we or whatever. We, were, we were, knew we were getting in on this. Is, this is part of the deal. <laughs> part of the yeah. deal. <laughs> what, okay, but my fav- I think my favorite one, oh, it's so hard to pick a favorite, but remember the, so anti-vaxxer Naomi Wolf, and then you tweeted at her an image that said something like, what was it? This doctor recommends you don't take the vaccine for reasons X, Y, or Z or something like that. And it was a picture of a porn star. Yeah. And she retweeted it. The thing is, I never want to get someone just for the sake of get it. Like, I want to try to say something with it. And what I was trying to say with that is look at how little they vet what they're getting. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's a picture like, of a porn star. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. want to cheap shot people, but it's like, this is... In indicative of how she comes to evidence on this stuff in general, which is, oh, it's something I agree with. Let's shoot it out there. It's a meme. Right. It's a right. meme. And I, it agrees with me. So retweet. Right. Personally, I enjoyed when you got a bunch of conservative commentators and politicians to retweet the Lee Harvey Oswald <laughs> That was photo. good. Colonel Jessup. It was like, <laughs> Colonel Jessup was great. It was like fishing with dynamite because they were like. I, Tell people the whole story because they may not have followed it. This yeah, is, it's amazing. amazing. How did so you the get point, the idea? The point I'm trying to make with that is that yeah. you have a lot of these uh politicians are like, oh, you need to study history and, you know, uh, to understand why my policies are good or something. And it's like, these guys don't know anything about history. And so uh, to try to illustrate that um, on, uh, I don't remember if it was Veterans Day, but every, every Troops Day, they, they're Day, always yeah. very, they're always very performative about it, which by the way, I, I talk to a lot of, you know, service members who themselves are conservatives, maybe not like Republicans or MAGA or whatever, but conservatives. And they find it extremely distasteful the way that they're out there saying, oh, we're overflowing with love for the troops. And they never want to increase the VA budget or right, you know yeah. do anything yeah. to materially help them. It's sort of like the equivalent of um of uh liberal virtue signaling yeah. for the for the right when they're doing these kind of things. That's right. true. And it's interesting because they're always like Ken is being so disrespectful to veterans. The first guy that that messaged me was a longtime Marine um, saying thank you for doing this and, and showing how little these people care about any of this stuff. 
um, that they're just going to, you know, shoot off a retweet without looking at the photo of one of the most infamous people in 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 the modern American era. And again, I'm not trying to cheap shot them. I'm tr- what I'm trying to show is like if they can't recognize Lee Harvey Oswald, how much does this guy know about American about history and anything. culture? And that was the case with the um, Colonel Jessup too. One of the most iconic scenes. And I can't tell you how many times <laughs> you can't handle story, the truth. I have a story. Yeah. It's like it's like you hate this country. It's like well, apparently I know more about our cultural touchstones than than these guys do. Right from like the most famous actor in one of the most favorite famous scenes in, in a movie and Steve King, the white nationalist guy, get all the fake Americans out. Let's bring the real Americans in. Doesn't appear to know anything about his own culture. Was, so was he the one that retweeted Colonel Jessup or was he yes. Lee? Okay. He was Colonel Jessup. Yeah. And who was Lee Harvey Oswald? Was it Matt Gates who did that? Yes. Okay. That's amazing. So, Matt Gates. I have the list here. Dinesh D'Souza. Matt Dinesh D'Souza? It, all, it was all, it just all came in at Matt once. Matt Gates. I thought you got like so, a, I thought there was a Candace Owens or somebody else. That was a different so, one. That, just, that was a different one? Yeah. Just to give everybody the no. full understanding, if they haven't already surmised it from what we're saying, is Ken would take a picture of either Lee Harvey Oswald or Colonel Jessup and would tweet at these conservative figures like, my grandfather fought in World War II and he would really love it if on this Memorial Day you'd retweet his picture. And it would be a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> and they would retweet it. I want people to see how reflexively performative they are in all this stuff. They don't think about any of it. What does it mean? Like, how do I substantively help them? Just boom, show everyone that I love the troops. Does it bother you that that got more coverage than like your substantive stories? (laughs) Totally. I can tell you how many people in the intelligence community will say, oh yeah, you're the Rick Grinnell guy. And it's like, as much as I, as as much as I appreciate your, I would love to be known as like, you're the investigative reporter guy. You're the FOIA guy. You're, 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 you know, trying to do meaningful stories. It's always the memes. That's always what it is. That's a broader, and Crystal and I have had this conversation (laughs) too, when it comes to, you know, YouTube stuff. It's like, I can do just super straight, factual, important stuff and put the least sexy title on it, and it won't do well. You know, it'll get like 20,000 views. But if I, if it's like a conflict thing with Ben Shapiro and this person, and you, you know, make it like a clash between Destroys. them. Destroys. Yeah, I mean, then it's like 100,000 views, and you're like, guys, I love you, but for the love of God, get, eat your vegetable. You know <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying? I know. I mean, we did a segment today on the Joe Rogan, Sanjay Gupta clash. And I mean, you know, yeah. it's good. People are going to watch the shit out yeah. of that, yeah. right? Whereas we also had on a union worker who's striking Kellogg's and whatever. Half you know, views, in, less than half. Yes. In fairness, our audience does have a lot of interest in um, labor and unions, and those segments do perform decently for us. But there's no doubt about it. The personality conflicts and the just sort of like culture war flashpoints. They're so easy. There's something about so it. Easy. It's just in human nature, just, you know, even people who view themselves as very serious and very substantive and very focused on the right stuff. I mean, we're guilty of it, too. We yeah, were like, totally. we got to watch this Joe Rogan <laughs> thing, see what it is. I mean, you can't help it because you want to see that. I mean, we're human beings are very relationship driven. So I think those sort of like clashes and conflicts, there's just something about that that people True. find really interesting. I just hope we can try to be better than that. You know what I mean? Just don't yeah. make it so that the, it's like five to one in terms of views for the super serious stuff versus the personality clashes stuff. You know, if we can get it to like you get 70 percent of the views on the serious stuff, I'd be like, OK, I'll take it. I'll take it. Who else do you respect in the game, Ken? In the investigative game, not the social media game. Um... <laughs> That's a fun question. Um, I, you know, I, I came up as a kid reading Seymour Hirsch, and he was always my favorite reporter. Um, just national security reporting um, is is one of the easiest. 
types to get co-opted by mm. the agencies that you're covering, you know? Why? And that never... They tell you what they want you to know, right? Exactly. And everything is so secret, it's hard to verify things. And so if someone tells you, oh, there's a top secret report stating this, and you're able to verify that, you're probably not going to get to see the underlying report. So, um, and, and all the incentives run in the opposite direction against uh, questioning these things because it's so hard and time consuming. Like, I'll give you an example. G- uh, generally, if you want to prove something, um, you know, I'm friends with Zach Dorfman, the excellent reporter behind um, the uh, story uh, where the C- uh, CIA under Pompeo uh, plotted to uh, interfere with, uh, you know, Assange's um, work and even assassinate him. And um, if you look at his stories, those those types of stories he has, he has like 20 sources. And there's a reason I, he isn't, he didn't tell me this, I'm speculating. But um, the, the reason for that is if you say something that's sort of derogatory to these agencies and looks bad, you have to produce mountains of evidence for people mm. to take you seriously. On the other mm. hand, if you want to say, um, you know, the Russians are coming, the Chinese are coming, whatever it is. Um, and again, I'm not defending those regimes, but um, to, to say that requ- the evidentiary standard is a lot lower. Mm. To say there's a you know microwave brain rays that Russian spies are using yes. against our people, they're like, yeah, one dude told us that might be what's going on, so yes. we're going to run with it. Again, Adam Johnson says the bigger the enemy, the the less evidence you need. So if it's like North Korea, you don't need anything. Right. Which yeah. is why there's been a bunch of stories that they run and they end up having to retract it. I mean, there was a day where they thought he died. Is there Kim something? Died. I remember that. Yeah. Is there something even slightly more nefarious going on, Ken, which is that um, the people who are kind of the best, most reliable stenographers uh, see their careers rewarded for that? Oh, totally. It's not in one's interests uh, generally to do the hard work of, like I said before, pulling together 20. Do you know how hard that is to get 20 people to tell you something that is classified, that is a felony to tell you? That's extraordinarily difficult. Um, it's much easier. And also to say something that's more likely to get investigated by the Justice Department when the leak happens. Uh, shortly after it came out, Pompeo uh, went on some show and said they should be prosecuted, the people yeah, that said this. That's right. Do you think they're going to say that if it's, for example, geo satellite images showing that we need to go and do something about Iran? And we've got to go into Iran and, and, and knock them out or something? Probably not. I mean, I'm sorry, but there's a big political component to these leak investigations. And also you become friends with these people and you're worried. I mean, you know, that's to me is the most unpleasant part of the job is worrying about the people that take risks to tell you things. Um, worrying that, that, that you know, that they're going to face hardship because of that. Yeah. You know, it strikes me. To both of your points, it does seem like the media is sort of an anti-meritocracy in a way. And one of the two of the examples I go back to, the Iraq war, everybody who was wrong was promoted. Everybody who was right was kicked off the air, Phil Donahue, for example. And with the 2008 crash, on CNBC leading up to that crash, it was comical. They were they would have on the CEOs of these big financial institutions to be like, everything's fine. Keep giving us your money. It's wonderful. And then when the crash came, there was zero accountability. The people stayed at the network. People got promoted. And so really it is an anti-meritocracy. So it's interesting because now, since we have independent media and new media, um, you do have people who do a fantastic job, but it's very clear that they're sort of on the outskirts. Like we were talking about, some of your stories will get picked up, but it's got to be like Trump bad or an angle like that. And then a lot of your very substantive stories don't get picked up. You know, David Sirota, remember with the information he came out with recently in regards to this reconciliation bill, Kirsten Sinema was taking $720,000 from Big Pharma. Then she turns around and wants to kill, lower drug prices. Then we learn now it's actually 950000 or something like that. Like, And that stuff is so vital and so important, but it doesn't pierce through to mainstream media. It only comes from, you know, the the independent sources. So I don't know where I'm going with this question, but I, I actually, we did want to ask him about Kirsten Cinema 
and his theory on that. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So tell me your theory on that. Um, on what so you, you think, think she, it's a total bluff, correct? You tell everybody what you think on the reconciliation and mansion and cinema and what they're doing. Well, I'll say, I'll put it this way. It's very much in her interest to have people believe that she might just get up and walk. Maybe we should go and, and make a counteroffer and, and give her some concessions. Because if we don't, what if she just leaves? But I think, um, again, I don't have any inside insight into Why is what that it, in her interest? Because then people will give her more concessions. If they don't believe she's going to walk, mm. they won't. Um, and so uh, if you look at what she's doing, I think we have a situation in which there's a game of chicken going on between uh, her and, frankly, the rest of the party, because it's just her and Manchin. Um, uh if if they end up if she ends up walking, they don't pass not just the uh, build back better reconciliation bill, but but even the sort of corporate handout. Um, uh, one trillion second or so, one. Yeah, yeah, she gets nothing, and that's and and it's hard for me to see that being good for her in any sort of way uh, in in a re-election context. Well, here's what here's the problem with that analysis, though, which is that I don't know that she cares about a re-election contest. I think she may well be. In, more interested in whatever her paycheck is going to be post-Senate. Because, I mean, the polling already s shows something like 70% of Democratic-based voters are ready to kick her out. Um, she's very vulnerable for a primary challenge. Granted, her election isn't for, what, three more years, so there's still a long time to go. But all of her actions, to me, they're so blatant and shameless. I mean, right now she's in Europe on a fundraising trip. You know, she's so out in the open about talking to the donor class and doing this and that fundraiser, leaving D.C. to go do a high dollar donor retreat back in Arizona, all of those things. It just seems to me that she's much more interested in that future career path than actually holding her seat in power. I'll say this. I You'll never go broke banking on someone like her's addiction to power. I mean, we have somebody, Diane Feinstein, who literally, according to The New Yorker, has dementia. Uh, running for re-election and winning by like less than 1% because they cannot let go. We Ordinary people can't understand the type of person generally that gets to the Senate, this kind of thirst for power. Uh, and so giving that seat up, I just don't, I mean, uh, to give you another example on the other side of the aisle, you have Chuck Grassley who's like 90 and he's just announced that he's running. These guys are constitutionally incapable of letting go. If you look at that guy's Twitter that. though, you know he's still sharp. Oh, he's the man. <laughs> I love this. He's the best Twitter feed of all time. Way better than he's he's awesome. He's um, awesome. Yeah. Hilarious. So we had Jeff Stein on last week, and I, I presented his uh, your theory to him and got his reaction. What did he, he say? Well, he basically has he the same position. He said you're wrong about as, everything. <laughs> well, he was joking about that. <laughs> but he basically had the same position as me, which is I see no evidence that she would support the $3.5 trillion bill and the $1-plus-trillion-dollar original infrastructure bill. I see zero evidence of that. Um, I honestly think our only hope would be to have like a 2.2 trillion or something like that. And even then Biden would have to pull out all the stops and Biden would have to give the character stick approach and play the role of mafia boss and effectively threaten them to get it done. Um, you really think that it's a total bluff in the sense that it, when push comes to shove, she would even vote for the 3.5 trillion? Um, she has essentially two choices at that point. And, and one is, um, support the best offer that's given to her or have nothing. I think that in the event of um, having nothing pass, I think there's pretty good evidence that that would just be a route for the Democrats in the next election and indeed in her the election. The donors don't care about the Democrats, right? How do you mean? Like the donor class doesn't care if the Democrats get routed. And I also think Kirsten Sinema would rather have nothing than both of those bills. Uh, here's the other question that I think is really relevant to this analysis, which is 
Um, business likes the bipartisan infrastructure deal and they hate it. This are, these are general terms. Right. But they hate the reconciliation bill, especially, you know, energy interests, fossil fuel interests, um, and corporations looking to keep their taxes low, all of those interests kind of aligned against the reconciliation bill. But how much do they actually care about the infrastructure bill? Because I think that's been one of the calculations that progressives have made is that people like Kirsten Cinema really, really yeah. care a lot about this infrastructure bill because donor class interests really care a lot about this infrastructure bill. Um, what is your sense of that, though? Do you think that that analysis is actually correct, that they do, in fact, care a lot about getting this um, infrastructure package through? The view that I've always had is that it's critical to a re-election, not the, uh, not the Build Back Better one, but the gotcha. corporate handout one. And so that's so the fundamental that, disagreement. That's my that's, view. Is that yeah. Crystal and I aren't as and, convinced that she wants to go, go back to Washington and you are. So yeah. that would I I'm perhaps less confident uh uh like publicly than 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 how I'm trying to sort of needle you when I'm texting you these things <laughs> to, try to, get, to try to to try to get a rise out of you and see what you say. Fair. Um but, very fair. But I don't know, that's my view. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, cuz if you're right, ultimately Let's make a prediction now. I'd say 2 tri I say they agree on 2 trillion. I mean, so everything is so volatile, I genuinely can't make a good prediction oh, on this. Oh, come on. But I will say that I do think what you just said is the most likely scenario okay that you get mansion and cinema whittled down to like two trillion and the progressives swallow that pill but you know will there be any progressive holdouts at two trillion you might see some you might see like a little bit of a push that's what's so like interesting about all this them. this is the, the the way in which history is just erased and you see some of these voices that are like everything's the same, you know this kind of nihilism where it's like everything's exactly the same as always like obviously i'm not ha i'm not happy i want it to be you know i want the original five trillion or six right. trillion that bring of course right. but there is a center of power now that's that's uh, able to essentially take this bill hostage, which is what the uh, progressives did, and that right. never existed before. That's exactly yeah. right. The, and listen, a lot of that is from the grassroots pressure, where previously they folded and they felt the fury of the grassroots, and so now they are they were held accountable and they held the line, which is why I've given them tremendous credit when they refused to delink the bill. They were like, right. we're not playing around with you. We're not yeah. going to delink the bill. That no. was like a historic moment. And there was it hardly was. any analysis flex, of it in the mainstream. Flex muscle. Right. Flex muscle. And this is the first time when progressives will really be taken seriously. Yeah. Right. In now they Washington. have a seat at the table. Now right. they have a seat at the table. There's yeah. precedent for this, too. Because I think um, when you look at how Gottheimer conducted himself with all that, it seems as though he was just behaving. Um, uh, he was just operating off the assumption that, oh, they always fold. They'll the progressives they'll always right. fold. Yeah. And when you look at the letter he sent to Pelosi, he couldn't get a single one of the unbreakable nine to sign it. That, Not one. Right. That was hilarious. He's so, my Strength impression from, from staffers that I know, I think that these guys, they're just out of touch. They don't see that things have changed. When things change, they're the last ones to know about it. Isn't he also really hated? Yes. Like personally. Despised, even yeah. among his own I love that. Staff, staff, apparently. Right? I yeah. mean, I those things and those things, they it's matter. easy to overlook, but those relation, again, human beings, relationship based, those things ultimately matter. So when you're like, am I going to stick my neck out for freaking Josh Gottheimer? Like, no, I mean, that's not, that's not remotely worth it. You know, in the beginning, I think it was maybe a little more comfortable for progressives to hold that line because they effectively, I mean, Bernie had effectively made a deal with Pelosi that we're linking these bills. This is the strategy. That's what we're doing. And then at the kind of, you know, she negotiated this weird deadline with Gottheimer and those people. Right. And then she also kind of at the last minute backed away from the two things having to be linked. And so then you had a real moment and um, progressives, again, to their credit, held strong with it, were totally clear and unequivocal. No way. I mean, they had 40 or 50. 
Yeah. I'm like, fuck off. That's the thing. This notion that it's a conflict between equivalent sides is, I mean, <laughs> the progressives are way bigger than these. Uh, but and yeah. if you go back to even just the beginning of the, it, let's, uh, I, would, I, I think that the most comparable time of the Obama administration was like tw- 2009 when they're hammering together the ACA. Mm-hmm. And you look at the votes, it was almost flipped where it was like a few progressives and a ton of these blue dog Democrats right. back then. Right. So the environment has completely changed and there doesn't seem to be a lot of, a pre- it's just, just assumption, oh, it's always been this way. Well, and the other thing is that like, this is actually a good bill. Whereas for me to call a piece of legislation good is like, you really have to have good stuff in there for me to say that. So I don't say that lightly. And we learned from Jeff Stein, child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug costs, dental, hearing, and vision, and Medicare expansion, housing, home care, major climate money, lower the Medicare age, um, raising tax on the wealthy. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. And even given that it was effectively, you know, what did the progressives want a 10 trillion Bernie got at six and then now the, the compromise is 3.5 and that's their line and they're arguing that. So it's because they've driven such a hard bargain that it's possible we get something. But if it is blown up, I guarantee you this, the progressives will be blamed by the media, even though it is definitely Manchin and Cinema's fault. Yeah. Well, and the other, I mean, they've done well and won, you know, what was a really significant battle along the way, but we're also a long way from this thing being that's right. complete. Yeah, that's right. So it's I very volatile. The details of where they're willing to draw those red lines, how hard they're willing to negotiate in terms of where the bill actually ends up, that'll also be where the ultimate analysis falls here. Yeah. All right. On that note. Ken, um, tell the people where they can signal you their tips I, and where they can find you in general. I appreciate that plug. That's always what I try to put in. People kind of <laughs> laugh because it's different than plugs that people usually do. But <laughs> you can signal me. That's uh, an encrypted, uh, free uh, encrypted text messaging platform at 202-510-1268. If you're a federal employer contractor in particular, um, that's of interest to me. And um, um, one other thing. Twitter, too. Give, give your Twitter button. Yeah. <laughs> At Ken Klippenstein. And I think I'm the only Ken Klippenstein, so that shouldn't be hard to. And then you don't you have a, because um, I think I support it, a Patreon for the um, FOIA lawyer yeah, that we you fund, work with? Yeah, we fundraise for, and it's amazing because um, these FOIA lawsuits, which really force the federal government to abide by uh, the, not just um, letter of the law, but largely the spirit of the law. Because when you have a federal judge breathing down their neck, they you know, suddenly care a lot more about what the law says than when you don't. Um, what's amazing is it's not extraordinarily expensive. Mm. This 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 thing we've had where we let these sort of big media corporations like the New York Times do most of the FOIA litigation, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. We've currently got like six or seven FOIA lawsuits ongoing, one every one prior to that in terms of, you know, getting responsive documents that we asked for. And each filing is maybe a few hundred dollars. Um, I've, you know, a brilliant attorney who's very generous with her time and doesn't charge. She, she does this on a pro bono basis. She's a public defender by day. Um, but, but I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to be that way where it's these huge corporations doing that. It's Mm -hmm. not quite that expensive. Like a, a ragtag team really could do a lot of this stuff. Uh, and that's sort of what we've been working on is trying to show, hey, um, you know, we and because the stuff that I'm interested in is very different than the stuff that I mean, how, what kind of things do you see FOIA litigation about? You got a lot of stuff on on waste, fraud, and abuse, which is important, but it doesn't quite um, it, it, it it's not quite focused on sort of like uh, corporate misconduct or intelligence misconduct in, in in the way that I'm sort of interested in. I think a lot of people are interested in. Fantastic. Very true. Ken, thanks for coming in. Thanks for your time. Thanks Thank for you, the work man. that you do. Great Appreciate to be with you, you guys. All right. So that was Ken Klippenstein. And um, yeah, that uh, that was interesting and that was fun. I think he does a wonderful job. Um, 
I never really stopped and thought about it that his beat is both intelligence community and worker stuff. Mm-hmm. That never really occurred to me. But as he was talking, I was like, oh, that's right. He does sort of do both of those things. So it's a mix of like foreign policy stuff, national security stuff, uh, workers' rights and union stuff. And yeah, I mean, he's one of the uh, journalists that I think doesn't get his due. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? David Schroeder is another one. Um, you know, I think of Jordan Sheridan when they, uh, he licensed out the footage that he took on January 6th to all these major media companies. Right. His Twitter video of, or, or YouTube video of it got pulled and they posted the but same video. Use it. I mean, yeah. that just shows you how, you know, there's a massive bias against independent media and new media and it's totally unfair. But Ken's a good example of somebody who doesn't get his due. It was really interesting to hear him talk about the, like, sort of inside the biz um, explaining why national security reporting in particular often ends up just sort of serving the ideological agenda of the deep state versus doing actual reporting. I mean, he talked about how there are effectively career consequences for doing the type of reporting that he does because you piss people off. How there's a higher standard, a higher bar of evidence, like dramatically higher, that you have to reach if you're telling a story that the CIA, for example, doesn't want you to tell versus if it's one that they effectively have sanctioned to be leaked to the press. Oh, well, you barely need any evidence on that one. So it was pretty interesting to hear his kind of media analysis and for him to say, number one, that um, national security reporting is the type that is most likely to be captured by the agencies that you're supposedly holding to account and reporting on. But number two, that actually there's more transparency in the deep state than there is in a place like Amazon, because at least Ken and other reporters like him have access to FOIA to be able to demand some of this information and transparency from these agencies. And that's not an easy process and they bury tons of things. But with gigantic corporations um, that run so much of our uh, economy, both here and around the world, there's no similar level of accountability. Yeah. um, It's funny because in the U.S., we have this view, a lot of people have this view of like, well, state media in other countries is completely biased and you can Mm. reject the stuff that they're saying. But corporate media functionally is really not that different because if all you really do care about is access and cultivating those relationships with people in power, then as a general rule, they're going to feed you the stuff they want you to know and you're going to report on the stuff that they're feeding you. Yeah. And uh, oftentimes that serves a narrative. That serves um, whatever their ends are. If their if their goal is to you know sort of get us to the point where there's another war in a certain place, you'll be fed that propaganda to get us into another war, and you'll probably dutifully report it as we've seen every step of the way. I mean, I retweeted something earlier today. In fact, I'm just going to pull this up here because this is perfectly relevant to the conversation that we're having. Um, this is the New York Times, actually. So you would think that, if anything, they would be on the other end of the spectrum and they would be a little bit more reasonable with it. But um, here it is. These are headlines in New York Times op-ed. Bomb Syria, even if it is illegal. What? (laughs) Okay, that was from 2013. Uh, Another one here, 2015. To stop Iran's bomb, bomb Iran. That was an op-ed written by John Bolton, by the way. Um, Bomb North Korea before it's too late from 2013. Um, bombing Iraq isn't enough by Bill Crystal, 1998. In other oh, words, invade, boots on the ground. Defender so, of democracy, Bill Crystal. 
So, I mean, they run stuff like this. Now, these are examples of op-eds with a little different. It's more of the opinion section. But even, you know, you see it in the hard news section as well when, you know, the famous Judith Miller thing where she was leading up uh, to the war in Iraq and doing the propaganda. In some ways, those um, straight, supposedly straight journalistic pieces are more damaging because people, you know, have trust and faith that they're getting an accurate Mm -hmm. portrayal of what's really going on and, you know— Frequently, that's not actually the case. Frequently, they are being served an ideological agenda, score settling or trying to grab more powers than they have or trying to start a new conflict or war. And those potential biases are, you know, left out of the equation in terms of the reporting that ultimately is going on. I think the CNN piece that we mentioned is that Adam Johnson over on his Substack and actually he worked with another reporter doing that work. But the reason it's so important that CNN is running, it appears, um, paid propaganda for the UAE. These pieces are like, Fluff well, pieces. UAE has its first female astronaut. And look at these am- amazing yoga in a rainforest in Dubai. I mean, just the fluffiest. There's no rainforest in Dubai. Puff piece. It was an indoor fake okay. rainforest. Okay. I watched <laughs> the piece. All right. And it was a bunch of, it, it was a bunch of like Western women in sports bras, right, like unrolling yeah. their mats and whatever with the message, of course, being, look, Westerners, we're not repressive. We're tolerant. We're amazing. Come spend your money, et cetera, et cetera. And none of this had any sort of disclosure. There was one piece that had this almost indecipherable disclosure. Everything else was run as if this was just straight journalism. 105 of 106. Yes. But even the the other one was... Was a throwaway line, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, it's, it's pretty extraordinary and it just shows you where their priorities really are. When it came down to it and the UAE asked, uh, offered them a whole bag of cash, it appears that they were happy to take it, throw any sort of journalistic standards aside and just be like, women do great in Dubai and the UAE and it's amazing. And these same people, of course, run around crusading about freedom of the press. UAE is ranked the worst nation in the entire world for press freedom, routinely jailed journalists, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, co-sign all that. Um One of the things I wanted to ask Ken, which I didn't get around to, is his experience at the three major places he worked. Mm. So I want to know how how would he compare working at TYT versus working at The Nation versus working at The Intercept? You know, I would have been curious to hear him opine on that. Although, you know, maybe it's not the easiest question to answer given he's currently with The Intercept. So you're not exactly going to get any, you know, negative thoughts on The Intercept. Right. And I would have, you know. And in the past places, like you still have relationships there that it's hard. You may feel bad about burning. Yeah, that's true too, for sure. Um, But yeah, one of the things that could have been brought up was the way The Intercept handled the Greenwald thing, you know, where he wrote critically on Hunter Biden and they basically were like, yeah, you can't run this, even though the contract was like, I get to run whatever I want effectively. Yeah. You know? And um, I would say that on that particular instance, Glenn's initial view and reporting on it has been largely borne out. Like they were, right. you know, there was all this say, oh, this has all the hallmarks of Russian misinformation and all of that. Of course, it turns out the emails were real and the and campaign didn't even like deny that they were real at the time. Well, what Glenn says is that at the time, internally at The Intercept, you got this sense that all of them felt bad about their role leading up to the 2016 election. Yeah. where I think you may have had Lee Fong and maybe Zed Jelani who 
did some hard hitting and accurate reporting on Hillary Clinton's corruption through and through with the Clinton administration, with the Clinton Foundation, excuse me, among other things. And so they felt like, did we play a role in sort of electing Trump by mm-hmm. reporting negatively on Hillary? Right. And outside, like they didn't do tough stuff on Trump. I'm sure they did tough stuff on Trump. Oh, absolutely. Of course they did. They're the intercept. Um, but so you did have this internal culture that was like, uh, doing this at this time right before the election seems like it's going to help Trump maybe win and we don't want to play a role in that. And of course, Greenwald's response is like, oh, it's not our role to fucking cheerlead and to, you know, pick carefully what we're uh, what we're putting out there because of what may or may not happen as a political backlash. We're just supposed to put the information, the facts and, and you know, what we think is important and, and relevant. And so that was, you know, the breaking up of essentially. But yeah, to, I will say this, even though I think The Intercept was 100 percent incorrect on that front. And even though I think hiring James Risen with his Russiagate tripe was stupid outside of that stuff, I do think. And Ken's a great example of this. When you look at all the amazing stories he's broken, they do a, a decent job outside of those horrendous mess ups. I mean, I rely on them for a lot right. of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do a lot of, of important work, again, on corruption and things that the mainstream media doesn't pay attention to. And certainly looking at the scope of Ken's reporting, you don't see any evidence of pulling punches where right, yeah. liberals or Democrats or, you know, established so, politicians are concerned. It was interesting um, and relevant to this how he noted a pattern, very obviously, of when he writes the when he does the reporting that's Trump is bad, that gets picked up. Right. Mm-hmm. New York Times, where, whoever, right? That stuff they'll pick up, they'll amplify, they'll run with when it's, you know, Biden does something bad. Well, they just they just don't really pick those up. They ignore them. They don't pay attention to them whatsoever. And so you can certainly see if that's the ecosystem, you can see how it incentivizes reporters to feed into that system, what that system is going to want and want to elevate and what's going to improve their career. So when you see someone like Ken or like Sirota or the other reporters that we like and trust um, going against the that incentive system, it's, it's worth really paying attention to. Yeah. So I, I guess... Final thing I'd say in regards to the intercept is that I, I tend to take a grain of salt, whatever they say on the issue of Russia or Russia Gate or Syria. But outside of those, I think they generally do a good job. And I think Ken, uh, his reporting on his own, stands on its own two legs very clearly. And, you know, I challenge anybody to go through, type in the intercept, Ken Clippenstein to Google, click the first link and look through all of his stories and it's banger after banger. Yeah, he's he's exposed a lot of wrongdoing, both in the government and also um, in corporate America. So, I mean, we would not know that. Amazon delivery drivers routinely have to shit in bags and that the company knows about it and did nothing other than um, force them to hide it better right. uh, yeah. if it weren't for Ken's reporting. That's exactly reporting right. Um, all right, guys. So subscribe on Substack to Crystal Kyle and Friends. $5 a month to get you every single video of the podcast and you get it a day early. Uh, we take zero corporate money at, you know, zero any kind of advertiser money yeah. for the show. We don't even, we don't read ads. We don't do anything like that. So it's just raised $5 even the a pop. clips that you post on YouTube. Yeah. I don't stress that enough, but even when we upload the clips to YouTube, like the teaser clips, we click off the monetization. So even if you see an ad run on that, it's because Google wants their cut. AdSense wants their cut. It, but none of that comes to us. And believe me, there are times where <laughs> I'm looking at the, you know, the view count on one of those yeah. videos, like the Russell Brand one we did with yeah. Candace Owens. I was oh, my, my biggest video in like a, a year. 
and it, I clicked the monetization off. Why? Because I'm fucking too principled for my own goddamn good. <laughs> so, and it drives me crazy sometimes, but hey, I can sleep at night. So anyway, uh, subscribe to Crystal Kylan, friends. Again, that $5 means the world to us. And also you get the cool newsletters from Piper. Shout out to Piper for yeah. all the work that she does for us. She does a phenomenal and, job. And um, if you don't uh, want to pay the $5 a month, you're wrong, but it's fine. Uh, and you can just listen for free uh, on any of the podcast apps. And also what you can do is if you, you can sign up on Substack for the $5 a month and get the video, or you could sign up for free. And what happens then is it gets delivered uh, right to your email box the second that it, it drops. Yeah, so you kind of get right. it faster in a way than if you were to just kind of wait and check whatever and your favorite you podcasting Piper's, outlet is. And you get Piper's cool newsletters. Correct. Too. Yeah. So anyway, love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. See you next week.